An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people, from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists, to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very excited to welcome our special guest, Monique Aiken. Monique is Managing Director of the Investment Integration Project, or TIP, a consulting services and applied research firm that helps investors manage systemic risks and opportunities. More than that, TIP and Monique are thought leaders in the truest sense of that phrase. They have been a major catalyst accelerating the adoption of systems-level investing by major institutional investors. Systems-level investing says the overall health of the environmental, financial, and social systems and of the capital markets matters more to risk and return than security selection. And so investors should focus on systemic health. It's still a very young discipline, but it's making some big waves with more than a trillion dollars in investors following its precepts. Monique has worked at the Mission Investors Exchange, a 250-member network for impact investors, at Impact Consult Tideline, and at the Clinton Global Initiative. And that was after she spent 15 years in financial services at the Bank of America's Loan Origination Group, Citigroup's Debt Capital Markets Team, and Deutsche Bank's Commodity Derivatives Group. Monique is also a contributing editor at Impact Alpha, a digital news magazine for the impact investing community, where she hosts The Reconstruction, a podcast about moving capital towards justice. She's also founder of the Make Justice Normal organization. As if that's not enough, she's added a new com- accomplishment. She is now a published children's book author. Are You My Cutie Patootie will be published in January by Schiffer Kids Books and is available for pre-orders. I have to say, just saying, Are You My Cutie Patootie makes me smile. Welcome, Obie. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I sound busy, huh? Yeah, you are. So... What's your origin story? What two or three experiences stand out in your memory and helped you become the person you are today? It's always a funny question because I think of the quote, your path is made by walking. And it wasn't like there were some major milestones that I can recall, but I decided to figure out if there was a few vignettes that sort of um, painted a picture. But I'll start with, I am second oldest of eight. And that's kind of uncommon these day and age, but my parents had five girls and then adopted three more kids, two out of foster care, one who um, my mom met who was going to my high school. And the day that she met was a Friday. She moved in Saturday and she's been a part of our family ever since. And that was her freshman year of high school, my junior year of high school. And I shared that because it's related to if you know about a problem, maybe it's on you to fix it. And that's been sort of the mantra that unintentionally and maybe unarticulated sort of wove through my life. And so what problems do you notice and therefore now become your responsibility? So that is related to how my family kind of operated. 
we took in various kids other than my three adopted siblings over the course of my life. We had people who stayed with us from various places around the world, Colombia, Zambia, Curacao. Like there's just people who would sometimes show up and stay for weeks to months, depending on what they needed. And that came from my grandmother, who as a widowed woman in Jamaica, not much, um, eight kids of her own. And her youngest was a baby when my grandfather passed away. My dad was around eight. And at her 90th birthday, more than 30 people, other than her eight kids, claimed that they had lived with my grandmother for weeks to months to years, depending on them, and all called her mama. And everyone called her mama because those street children were her responsibility too in her mind. So she saw the problem and she that whatever little I have, I will share it with, um, with them. And so with that as like an overall ethos for how to approach life, add to that, my uncle who just passed away a couple months ago, English, proper English gentleman, who told me when I was around 14 that I was a lead cow. And I thought, um, is he insulting? I don't know. I don't know much about animal husbandry. And he said, you got to be careful because the lead cow is who the rest of the cows will follow. You don't actually have to herd all the cows. You just have to actually lead the lead cow and the others will follow them. And, you know, as he explained it to me, it was like, that's an important responsibility because where are you going to take them? And I was about 14, 15. I didn't, I didn't actually have a full consciousness of what he was telling me, but I think back on it often and I ask myself, where am I going and that others might be following? And is it worth going there? In addition to my siblings, especially the adopted ones, one was from Guatemala. She moved into my bedroom that day, that Saturday, the next day that I mentioned before. And she moved into my bedroom because I spoke the best Spanish in the house at that time. And my mom told me, within days of her moving in, she will follow you. And it's going to be important for you to lead her into this family because you are the person that she's going to feel most connected to. And what are you going to do? And that's a responsibility that was kind of heavy at the time, but also important for her to call out and name for me. I think the next galvanizing point was the book Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown that I read during the pandemic just a few years ago. It told me that there's this emergent space and that there's no answers. Where are you going to go and where are you going to lead people to is what I took from that. Because this is uncharted territory to move towards justice and systems change work. We don't have a roadmap into this like new world that we need. And it's okay. And you can just experiment. And that's what I took from that. And this idea of like, what am I responsible for? I'm not responsible for all these challenges that we currently face. But maybe not just by myself, because certainly I alone can't fix it all. But maybe together. Because to the three kids that my parents took in, that was life-changing. And to the 30 that my grandmother took care of, that was life-changing. And while we won't necessarily, I can't necessarily save everything and everyone, but together, imagine the multiplier effect. So the other thing that changed me and made me the woman I am now is becoming a mom to a Black boy amidst a global racial reckoning with pandemic and the climate crisis playing out everywhere, conflict zones and civil wars, 
causing vast human suffering, displacement, all at the same time. Like this moment in time is so much more complex and interconnected than ever before in human history. And what can I do? That's the question I ask myself. And I ask those who are willing to come with me. And, you know, Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. And I'm so fortunate that I have seen lots and lots of helpers. And what if we weave them together? And we, we, we try. You mentioned giving birth to Levi. Um, this is a podcast, so you all can't see her. But Monique identifies as a first-generation Jamaican-American woman. She has previously said that she is often the only Black woman in a meeting, particularly when she was working in traditional finance. How did that play out? What did that make you feel like? And, and, and how did it come to shape the philosophy? Well, as a child of immigrants, first generation, my parents came to the States uh, when they were younger. My mom around nine and my dad around 20 to go to college. I heard their stories of othering that they experienced on arrival with accents and things like that, not to mention blackness in America, my, that of my grandparents who came before my mother. And just this idea of a consciousness of someplace else that often other Americans born when I was born never had. And this idea of being part of a fabric of community was always kind of present in my life. And in those spaces in finance where I was the only, either by virtue of being a woman or by virtue of being Black, um, in space, I didn't have that there. I was hyper-visible, but also often completely invisible at the same time. It's a weird sort of tension to hold with this idea of like two things being true at the same time that are often this would seemingly at odds. How can you be invisible and hypervisible at the same time? But that's what some of those spaces represented to me. But at the same time, I was in a place that I was never supposed to be. Think about like women in finance. The world was not made for women to succeed in finance. And many women were not even in the industry in the 70s. This idea of women in jobs. Women at elite universities, Black people at elite universities, those are some of the things that were part of like my story that got me those spaces. But I got a chance to see some things close up around how the capital markets worked and moved that are part of how I can more meaningfully interrogate it now. Um, and part of how and why I intentionally weave community with women and Black people and in solidarity with other people of color because that um, at times isolation is not something I want for anybody else, but also, of course, the only way for us to make change is to do it hand in hand and together. What you were doing for the banks, though, was pretty much technical finance, I mean, debt origination to revenues. That's pretty far from systems level investing or, or focusing on justice issues. Is there a link or was it, you know, you were doing a gig and that was the phase of your life, and now you're out the other side and, <laughs> and, and, and able to focus on other things with a knowledge of how finance works. Yeah, I think I entered it thinking I didn't know something. So part of why I went in that direction is that, you know, international relations degree and school of foreign service, the money often ended up being what drove what happened next. And I didn't have the tools to understand 
why that was the case, how money moved, why these things mattered. And I wanted to understand it. So I moved towards that in order to resolve a gap in my understanding of how the world worked. Um, it was never the end game. It was um, just, it was a curiosity, but it was also, how can you fix if you don't know how it's broken? And I wasn't asking myself those things then. I was just saying, I need to understand something better. And then maybe how I show up, my purpose, something else will be revealed to me because I didn't know it then and I didn't start in those paths thinking about finance as a tool for change. But now I know differently and I know more. And when you know more, you can do something else. And at the edge of new understanding, uh, understanding how systems work, play out, how financial markets work, play out, and how it's the plumbing behind so much of how we live our lives in invisible ways. And what do we need to visibilize in order to make this more just world that I'm talking about? Let me ask you a question okay. about Tim. So let's jump forward to the future, to, to today. Tim's recently moved from a focus on consulting for major institutional investors. And though it still does that, it's also created a software platform to enable investors to create their own system-focused investing programs. So what exactly is TIMP right now, and what <laughs> is it to me that our listeners should know about? Sure. It's a company with essentially three business lines, but they are reinforcing because uh, if we did not have the thought leadership and the research that underpins why we're doing what we're doing and the consulting practice to help people actually apply and get to the how and the actual practice change that they need, we wouldn't have known what to put into that platform, which uh, the world essentially told us we needed when we did that report in 2021 called Approaching the Tipping Point. It was essentially a, a survey of what's going on in the world and people's understanding of system, how to connect systems thinking with investing. And they said they needed more information, why is it necessary, and what to do. Um, if you had told me I'd be helping to build a SaaS platform, I would say absolutely not. I didn't say anything about my background being in uh, IT and software design or anything such or anything like that. But we needed to go from the consulting model of one-to-one, -one, which is constrained by the number of people you have and the capacity to serve simultaneous clients to a one-to-many. And that's what a SaaS platform can do. That's what a subscriber platform can do. Um, it's literally to better serve the market. The market and the movement is constrained by our ability to share faster this idea in a way that people can actually understand the message in digestible ways because it's like a big, heavy, big, heavy, like meta thought. Um, and how do you unpack it so that people can take it on and think about the building blocks that get you to these kinds of changes? If you can say yes to do systems exist, do risks exist, do systems risks exist, and then we can say, well, then do we need to do something about it? If you can say yes to those four questions, then we can go into the complex thing of now change all of these practices, programs, and policies in order to live that thought. It's a change management question, ultimately, that we're asking for institutions. But we can't have what we had before. We are agreeing that where we've gotten to in these polycrises is not great. So then we have to do something else to get a different outcome. We've been using pretty bloodless language like systems and polycrisis. <laughs> and what we're really talking about here is um, things like income inequality, climate change, um, systemic racial injustice issues. So just in case the listeners want to know what we're talking about the systems, we're talking about 
real threats to the health of the environmental, social, and financial systems. And people. And, and people. Well, that's the social system. Right? I know, but I just want to name it. It's not just, it's a little abstract to your point about bloodlessness. It's right. people at the end are harmed. You know, I just did a podcast with Matt Muscardi of uh, Free Float Media, and they have a phrase that said, investing isn't a what, it's a who. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to try and focus on the fact that there's people making all these decisions. So absolutely. Um, you mentioned Make Justice Normal. This is a new charity, not-for-profit, that you founded. Why did the world need another not-for-profit? <laughs> How is Make Justice Normal different from everything else? Well, maybe it doesn't. But we would happily dissolve and go support some other group that was doing things the same way with our same values. But when we first started forming this, it was sort of as a result of the podcast, The Reconstruction, the people who are the co-founders, Anjali Deshmukh, Carrie Hansen, and Erica Seth Davies were my advisors with some other folks to that podcast experience. And we thought, um, we need some experimental space to the point of what we just talked about earlier. If we're going to usher in a more just normal We need new solutions, new ideas, potentially new messaging, new ways of talking about it, new ways of practice that we can do ourselves so that when we do it authentically, we can embody something, we can blueprint potentially, we can uh, prototype some things that are needed for this new tomorrow. And we wanted to be able to visibilize some things that we're noticing in the world that, that we thought others might not be seeing. And so this is experimental space so that we can try new things if we think that justice is our client. So that's just a different orientation. It's not like direct service nonprofits or other work. We are trying to figure out if justice is our client to deliver on a more just future, what do we need to do differently about decisions, about structures, about how we interact, about the role that often no one else plays in terms of weaving. There's so many different you know, fill in the blank, the word justice, you know, gender justice, climate, the ultimate risk that we're all describing is injustice as a collective global issue. And it manifests in so many ways and to climate, to harm, to people, women in particular around the world. And so what if we think about naming that injustice is what's normal? That's what we've all gotten so used to that you almost forget. So we want to just say that. And from a place of relative safety, psychologically and physically that we have and privilege that we have as, you know, being, happen to be born, most of us in America, then what can we say and do and just experiment with uh, and hopefully bring into the world? And again, is if we don't need to exist anymore, that would be wonderful. I know it's a relative of your organization, but can you concretize, can you give us some examples, make it concrete for us? Like, is there a program, an accomplishment, something that, that Make Justice Normal has launched recently that, that would um, put some, some concrete examples around the theoretical discussion? Yeah, so we have three projects underway right now, which are sort of like our first three pilots. They're on three different levels because, again, we were talking about like kind of the idea of brain space level for some of the narrative change work, but we also want to do work that's at the edge of our fingertips, really thinking about people in communities. 
And starting with one community, which is where Anjali Deshmukh happens to live in Jackson Heights, Queens, next September, we are doing a project that we're calling Streetworks. And essentially, it's the street fair for good kind of thing. How do we use social practice art and music to drive, um, I guess it's really environmental justice generally, but specifically, what are solutions that people could apply around climate in their very lives who happen to live in Jackson Heights, Queens, and also bring um, awareness about mental health and other kinds of wellness to the community um, in ways that they can both understand in, that, in local language and things like that. And then also talk about democracy because it's going to be next September during Climate Week where, you know, some folks will be doing some heady multilateral things um, in Manhattan. And that doesn't have almost any effect on the daily lives of people in communities around the world and, you know, just over the bridge in New York City. So this climate, uh, this the Streetworks idea is meant to say we have these kind of lofty meta ideas, but also we care at the people level in community. And what can we do to basically create a blueprint for the street fair for a good kind of idea? I have to ask this question. You work at the intersection of capital markets and some really tough issues, such as racial justice and climate change, income inequality. As we record this in late 2023, we have wars in the Middle East and the Ukraine. We've seen barbaric acts uh, in the Middle East, anti-Semitic and anti-Islamic bias crimes are skyrocketing around the world and here in the United States. Um, I happen to teach a course at Columbia. Once a week, the campus is locked, closed to prevent things from getting out of hand on certain demonstrations. Politics are so polarized that Moody's recently put the United States on negative credit watch because it worries the government can't get its act together, partially because Democrats and Republicans don't talk to each other. Mm. Yet you are inevitably gracious. You are smiling and joyous. What gives you optimism at all? Why aren't like the rest of us who are just doom scrolling and screaming at the world? <laughs> uh, sometimes I am. Uh, sometimes I absolutely am. And sometimes I'm in reduced to a puddle of tears for this horror that we are seeing. Um, like you mentioned in the Middle East and Gaza and around the world in various places, Somalia and Eritrea and this, there's this conflict and Congo has, the list goes on. There's conflict zones in so many places, but I'm a quote person. And I think about Maria Mikaba's quote about hope. Hope doesn't preclude feelings of sadness or frustration or anger or any other emotion that makes total sense. Hope isn't an emotion. Hope is not optimism. Hope is a discipline and we have to practice it every single day. And hope is like love. It's actually an action verb. So this begs the question, how do you practice hope? It's by doing something to drive a better outcome in smaller, big ways as your role in the world allows. Because the other Rational choice would then be hedonism or nihilism. And I think that the world can be a better place because I just told you, I see helpers all the time. Um, and I curate them in my life by intentional design. And if I think about the challenges of those who came before me personally, my parents and grandparents, what they survived, 
why they moved to immigrate to new lands that were far from home. So what my great-grandmother on my mother's side, one of them was a Portuguese Jewish woman who emigrated to Cuba, who then made her way to Jamaica. What was her story? What was she running from or to? I don't actually even know if she went there by herself or with her family. Um, my other great-grandmother, mother's side, was a Jewish Syrian woman who also ended up in Cuba and then moved to Jamaica eventually. My grand great other ancestors were African slaves and English people and all kinds of people were moving around the world and for lots of reasons, some by choice and some by force. So what did they survive? And how can I not think about my life literally as a miracle? Of survival. Not just every human is a miracle because every human is um, the, the basic miracle of life, but literally my, my existence is something I don't take for granted. And I feel blessed that I am just literally here. Um, and every Black and Indigenous person, probably if they thought about it, would feel similarly like we were not meant to be here anymore. But yet I'm here. And we just talked about some of the experiences that I've had, the opportunities that I've had, access that I've had. And it's, I am so grateful for chances that happened to come my way that should have come many other people's way who are smarter, harder workers than me. But I got the chance. And how can I not be grateful for that? Um, and I'm devastated. I, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm such a softie. Save the Children commercials might reduce me to a puddle of tears sometimes. And I, I can't even watch. I do not, I cannot do those trauma videos. I can't watch uh, those videos of Black suffering. I can't watch videos of Indigenous suffering. I can't, I can stomach it for about 15 seconds before I have to turn it off. My spirit is too troubled by that. And if we're not troubled into action, troubled into watching, that's, that's not enough for me. So my glasses are not rose-colored in any way, though I smile. It's because I'm practicing hope and I'm finding the other people willing to do something too. Because even though our efforts might be asymptotically close to zero in terms of like human choosing extinction, because that's the path we are on, at least from a climate perspective, not to mention our willingness to like let oppression and suffering continue to happen. But I, my belief is that Everyone deserves liberation, and let's fight like hell with everyone who agrees with that to deliver it to as many people as we can in our lifetimes if we can. But if there's anything worth fighting for, for however long it takes, it's that. So I am finding the people willing to practice hope with me in small and big ways, and I'm hoping that we find each other, all of us who are on that side of the ledger, and we might just actually fuck around and change the world. I don't know if you can curse around here, but, but anyway, doing that, getting to talk about systems change by day, talking about justice work and my side hustles, getting to be around people who care deeply enough to be going mad by this. Um, it's work worth doing. It's restorative work. It's energizing work. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like fulfillment. So I feel lucky that I get to do it from a place of safety, privilege, 
I get to eat regularly, have access to clean water. I get to love my son. Um, I get to say truthful things that I believe out loud without feeling like I'm under attack for it. Um, so I am great. What are the fun things you've done lately? It does fit into the narrative, but page it forward in a very different way is writing a children's book. Tell us about it. I dreamed about writing a children's book for about 10 years before I put pen to paper because I was scared of that responsibility. I wanted to write children's books, but I, for the zero to five set, you are basically pouring directly into a child's consciousness when they have no ability to filter out what you are saying. Um, so what is worth saying? So I thought about it and I wanted to write all kinds of things, but I didn't have like that searing inspiration of, of that moment of flow when you're like, this is it. This is what I need to say for a long time before I, I actually did it. Because the only thing worth saying to children at that age are things that are timeless and true. Educational things, inspirational things, books about how to be a human, navigate the world. So this first book is actually about love. It's a universal emotion, and I hope that everyone who reads it can feel the love that I have for my son, who inspired it, of course, because I wrote it on my maternity leave when he was about one month old. And I want every child who reads it or who is, it is read to feel the little bit of that. Because the illustrations depict children from an array of ethnicities and family contexts and abilities, they all deserve to be loved. Uh, that is imparted through nonsensical nicknames, right? We call people that we love terms of endearment. And we do that little cute voice. When you talk to babies and you talk to pets, the little cute voice. And, you, and that voice is how those people who don't speak English and those animals who don't speak English or whatever is your native language know that what you're saying is about being loving towards them. So this is hopefully a moment of connection that people use that cute voice when they read the book and the child who they're reading it to feels adored and loved. And maybe if we all felt like we could love each other, we would have less conflict and we would see the humanity in people and we would not do the things to harm them, whether it is acts of war, acts of economic violence, other kinds of violence, gender-based violence. We actually saw them as people worth loving. You care about the thing you love. Treat it with kindness. And what if we did that? So it's a form of narrative change work too, and it's, it's just about love. How do you relax? Do I? <laughs> Um, well, before COVID and before coming, becoming a mom, I used to call myself a runner and I would play my tenor saxophone. My start, my song that I always began every session with was Body and Soul. Or I'd listen to jazz, either recorded or live. Or go someplace and listen to the ocean. But who's got time for that anymore? <laughs> so these days I'm just actually happy I can shower daily and <laughs> keep my child clean and fed. But play, I relax with play. I get a lot of opportunity to play with my son and with my three sisters' children who live not far away, and my son gets to grow up with a couple of his cousins nearby. And if you look at the world through a child's eyes and they have wonder and awe at all kinds of new experiences that they're having all the time, I've been keeping track of my son's first since the moment he was born. 
And I thought I'd keep it for about a year. And now I'm on he's four and a half. And I just keep doing it because it reminds me of the novelty. And I get to play with him all the time. And we listen to music together. And my father-in-law has an internet radio show, which is the background to our dinner time often, or when we're playing with magnetiles in the playroom. And I remember what's important. And that's one of the ways I relax. I normally ask what type of music you listen to. You said you listen to jazz, but also you've said publicly that you love to dance like no one is watching. So I'm going to steal a question from my friend and fellow Spark podcaster, legendary DJ Nick Harcourt, and ask, what type of music do you listen to when you feel like dancing? So you don't know this, but my family is pretty musical. And those first five children were all girls that I mentioned before in my big family. We were the Aiken Five growing up. We used to go around to churches and other places. Then my parents mandated us to go sing, like those little family singing groups, which were so common. And praise God that there were not as many video recorders around. Because there's most of those performances were lost to um, to posterity. But we used to do performances together. We would make plays. We were we started a dance team in our church. I was in a dance troupe in college, actually. So we just act silly. We would break out an interpretive dance or do a flash mob that we planned for weeks on our own family members, like for holidays. And we would just do those kinds of things. But my go-to dance thing is salsa music. And salsa music is for generations. Babies can dance salsa and, and grandparents and be in the same room and all having a blast. So my, my joyful music is old school salsa music. And if I were to get even more narrow to that, Hector Laveau and Willie Colon and those horns are magical. And if right now you put on Elia de Mi Suerte and Levi was here, he would take my hand and he would go to dance with me. And that is, that is where I go. Levi being your four and a half year old son. If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be? The same Levi that we keep talking about loves a show called Wild Kratz. It's about animals. And with him, I've learned about all kinds of exotic animals all over the world. And he is actually saving up money to go on a few trips. And they are to the African savannah, the Amazon rainforest, and the Arctic. So if I were to go on a trip right now, I would take him probably to a conservation-minded habitat protecting safari somewhere so he could see the big game. Then do the Amazon rainforest to see the sloths, monkeys, tree, fro- tree frogs, kinkachus, and kotimundis. These are literally his favorite animals. I'm naming them. And to see the polar bears in the Arctic. So one of those three places is where I would go. Last question. If you could magically whisper something into the ears of everyone in the world, what would you tell them? That my go-to, and everyone would not understand this language, but the financial people would, we have to short the past and go along the future. For other places, I say we have to lift the floor. Um, And so what does that mean? That that means that we have to design for the most marginalized person in this world or in that context or in that geography. Um, And who would that be? Because if if we did so, there's no reality where the disabled Black trans woman in rural Mississippi is thriving and everyone else isn't. There's no reality 
where the single rural woman with children in Somalia, Yemen, Micronesia, like some place is thriving. There's no reality where if that woman is thriving and her children are safe, that everyone else isn't. We have done it the opposite way. <laughs> the most privileged people get to accrue more privilege and more wealth. But if we reverse engineer, because that's what got us here. That's what got us to this moment of polycrisis. So we need to design a world that supports the most marginalized people and their women and children. And if we ensure that they are all okay, we will all be okay too. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John McCumnick with our special guest, Monique Aiken. Uh, Monique, as you can hear, is just really special. There's nothing more to say. Thanks, Monique. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCumnick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John McCumnick, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.